Hi there. Welcome to Next Creator Up. My name is Aaron Prudell. Each week I speak with an emerging or established creator in one of numerous fields to explore their heart, mind, work, and process. Wherever you are in your creative journey, you'll get a number of tips and insights to help you get past your blocks and bring your ideas to life. Hey creators, before we get started, just a quick note. You can receive updates for the show, as well as special offers and exclusive content, including unaired lightning round Q&A by joining Creative Lightning. It's a free newsletter full of little inspirational nuggets that could help you bring your ideas to life. Learn more and sign up at nextcreatorup.com slash Lightning. Noah Knox Marshall is a film, television, and video game writer. He has also worked as a 2D animator, special effects artist, and themed entertainment consultant. He has long had a love and fascination with oceanic exploration, marine science, and futurism, which led him to his latest writing project, Daxander Sea Patrol. In this episode, we discuss Noah's various adventures writing in Hollywood, his advice to writers, as well as his first book in the Daxander series, and his goals with the series, including his partnership with the Purdue Agile Strategy Lab. I met Noah randomly in LA, and after striking up a wonderful conversation, I knew I had to have him on the show, and he did not disappoint. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, please welcome our next creator up, Noah Knox Marshall. Noah, thanks for being on the show. Howdy. Thank you for uh, inviting me. I'm really honored that you would uh, have me as a guest. Well, I'm very excited to uh, have you on uh, for a lot of reasons, but uh, uh, can you give us a quick uh, summary of who you are and what you're working on? Well, I've uh, worked primarily as a screenwriter in Hollywood under a different credited name. I write a lot of sci-fi and suspense, uh, some drama and a little comedy. Uh, I do some family work, uh, cartoons, animation, that sort of thing. And I actually worked as an animator for a number of years, self-taught, did uh, animated bits for advertising agencies and industrial concerns and so forth. But storytelling has always been the through line, whether it's drawing or writing. And I've been writing with some passion since about age 15, 16. So now I'm making money. But (laughs) that's always good (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, well how did you get into writing in Hollywood um I was accepted into USC's graduate film program and uh uh did about half the program well I did half the program and then uh left to work with a producer of some note he had he's done some films you would know he was a vice president of Columbia Pictures before that uh you know formerly what, what, what Sony pictures used to be and, um, worked with him on a couple of projects, including one feature that was released and learned a lot there, but was continuing to write. And, uh, at a certain point, some investors from back home, back East, uh, who had been kind of watching my life, they said, you know, we're, we're ready to, you know, finance your plans if you want to start doing something in film. And uh, so they financed my first feature, a low-budget feature. It was a little sci-fi drama thing, but had some actors in it. And uh, I won a few awards. It it was a little kind of sleepy film, kind of a Hallmarky type of thing. So it didn't get a lot of traction. It made some money. But um, after that, uh, I was on the basis of that, I, was, I started getting hired by producers to write uh, dramas and suspense. And that kind of launched me into screenwriting, you know, uh, apart from directing. I didn't, I, I haven't directed a whole lot. I've done a little tiny bit of TV and some short films and stuff. But since that feature, uh, I haven't directed anything feature length. Gotcha. Do you have any favorite stories of a writing assignment or a spec you wrote or a pitch gone bad or good? <laughs> uh <laughs> <laughs> I pitched something, quite a few actually. Uh, I pitched something to an agent uh, who's no longer with us, uh, a, a lovely man named Marty Baum at Creative Artists Agency. And it was a suspense film about a conspiracy to, uh, by a pharmaceutical company to stamp out a cure for AIDS. And the cure had been, it was kind of a Hitchcockian thing where the cure was in a tiny synthetic vial stashed inside the abdomen of uh, an emergency victim brought in after a crash. The surgeon stashes it in her 
And uh, anyway, the only person who sees this is the surgeon's nephew, who's an intern. And anyway, he wants to help her. The pharmaceutical company's after her, blah, blah, blah. And he stopped me about two thirds in the pitch. He said, wait a minute. Do you know how many people in this industry have died of AIDS? Do you really think a pharmaceutical company would try to bury a cure if a cure existed? And about a month and a half later, so I had to go on to the next pitch. But a month and a half later, I think it was Merck that was uh, indicted on conspiracy charges for not uh, an HIV vaccine or whatever, but something that was critical. I mean, it was in the cancer realm, you know, that they were uh, doing something almost as sinister. And I really, really, really wanted to fax that. You know, we had faxes when <laughs> 20 years ago. Um, but uh, I, I regarded my best impulses and re restrained myself. So, uh, but yeah. That's good. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd imagine uh, you don't get back into pitch uh, at the same place again uh, after sending the fax. If you, yeah, if you say, I don't think they take too kindly to I told you so. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, was there something that you wrote that didn't work out that helped you figure out who you are? Oh, wow. Um, that's a good question. I've written a diversity of projects for producers, but also specs. And I have some specs that uh, I've written. Yes, I'd have to say the specs I've written, not on assignment, not for pay, but in the industry, you, you may be aware and a lot of your listeners may be aware we have writing assignments, which we're paid for. Uh, producers come to us with ideas, and then we uh, write those. But we also have our spec scripts, which are our personal passion projects that we develop and write on our own in hopes of selling them. I've sold a couple. They haven't been made, but – well, one was made, and that was the one I directed. But um, I love sci-fi. I especially love marine life and you know anything sea-based in sci-fi. The big fan of Twenty Thousand Leagues, and when I was a little kid, I watched the reruns of uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and then Spielberg's Sea Quest (DSV). Um, I've always kind of lived in that space. And Epcot Center had this amazing thing. I was there three days after opening, which was the world's largest saltwater tank when it opened, the Living Seas, and that inspired a lot of my passion uh, for marine life, marine conservation, and marine science. And um, I wrote. Inspired by all that, fueled by all that, my brother was an oceanographer and a lot of my family has been in the Navy. I wrote several spec scripts that dealt with alien life, alien intelligence, and the ocean. And uh, those themes kind of just intertwine naturally for me. And uh, at a certain point, I realized this is what I'm good at. This world, this realm, exploring this realm of liquid space that we know so little about. I mean, we know more about what's on the moon than what's at the bottom of the, the deepest parts of the sea. Hmm. So um, so at a certain point, it was just kind of a little, you know, that lovely little light bulb that went off and goes, you know what? This is where I should spend more time thinking because I'm happy here. And if I'm happy in this place, I will create better work. Right. So, I mean, this is the the sea and the imaginative world as well. But you said your brother is an oceanographer. Do you scuba dive or do you uh, spend a lot of time engaging underwater world uh, yourself? I, I snorkel. I haven't gotten my PADI certificate, um, which is a real shameful thing on me. That's one of my bucket list things for this year coming. Uh, it's going to be very awkward increasingly in interviews for people to ask that question and me to say, no, I don't scuba. <laughs> but <laughs> But it's it's just been a matter of opportunity and time and uh, and having the right buddy to take those courses with me. Um, but absolutely, that's the plan for this year. Uh, my brother was an oceanographer. He died when I was a kid, so his whole um, his whole thing, you know, was he was a great big brother and really brilliant, uh, great chemist. And uh, I think part of him leaving me early kind of impacted me with the things he loved you know they just kind of stayed firmer in my consciousness um and so part of it is honoring him uh with these pursuits creatively yeah i i, I get that actually uh from uh my own individual standpoint as well too um, i have a younger brother who passed away and oh. i find that uh i also 
honor, you know, a lot of the passions that he had as well. Um, yeah. We both got certified uh, scuba diving at an early age, which is the time to do it before like fear sets in. Yeah. You know, you... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I appreciate that my parents forced uh, the both of us to do a lot of uh, these adventurous activities uh, that uh, a lot of my friends won't do now out of risk of injury or even worse death. I yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I did a plane wreck dive when I was 12 years old. It was a first for PADI certification. Oh, wow. Where, and it was with uh, National Geographic uh, photographers as we were at a very unique place in Kona, Hawaii. Uh, the uh, wife of the dive master was the um, stunt double for Waterworld with Kevin Costner for the, oh, nice. the, the lady there. So yeah, so we're with that team essentially diving a 130 foot plane wreck as my wow. first as my first dive. So I, I share a love uh, of the water as well, which is why I really, uh, really enjoy um, your book, which we'll get into uh, Dax Xander. Um, so what what has helped you become a better writer uh, over these years? Uh, writing <laughs> and, <laughs> and reading. Uh, you know, the, the old saying you learn by doing, and it's just you, you just have to keep at it and you have to develop a, a, a general dissatisfaction with your current state of, of craft so that you are you know, you just read better writers and you keep reminding yourself, uh, you know, that you are far from that place and that there's always room for improvement. And you develop uh, a few good friends and even maybe a few strangers who are kind enough to evaluate your work who will be brutally honest and know that you will trust them not to get upset if they give you some harsh criticism. Um, that's what's really helpful. Um, so you just keep at it and you d you develop the kind of community that can give you feedback that helps keep refining your skill. Do you think someone can be a writer if they don't feel emotion strongly? Oh, boy. Uh, it depends on what they're writing. If they're writing about, you know, computer chips and <laughs> uh, gigawatts and... And energy uh, conveyance, uh, sure. But I, I think if you're writing about people and about the human experience, uh, no, it's feeling is is all include. It's all important. You have to be feeling. What's the best money you've ever spent as a writer? Uh, KDP Rocket. Uh, it's uh, something developed by a guy named Dave Chesson, uh, Kindlepreneur. He's a man who just you know, they say George Washington Carver uh, focused just on the peanut, and he came up with hundreds of uses for the peanut, both medicinal and and otherwise. And uh, and this guy just lives inside Amazon marketing. So uh, when I finally decided, I went through about fourteen months of submitting to agents, and nobody's publishing non dystopian futurism. Nobody's <laughs> publishing positive sci-fi for kids, or at least if they are, I haven't, they're, they're hard to find. So I, um, I decided I would go ahead and do the self-publishing thing, but that if I was going to do that, I had to do it with, uh, you know, some good research and good tools. And I stumbled upon Dave Chesson's thing, and he is the guru of marketing and using the Amazon tools, all their metrics, their, their search engines, all that stuff. I mean, it was 97 bucks for a lifetime subscription. I don't know what it is now. I don't think it's much more. But for anybody that's even considering the possibility of self-publishing, uh, it's a fantastic tool. It's really, really helpful. And he keeps giving new information that, you know, with no financial, I mean, I'm not giving him any more money. And he just keeps sending his customers, people that have invested in, in KDP Rocket, he just keeps sending them new information as he discovers it, new quirks of because they keep updating their software and uh and all that and and he stays up on it and just provides that information for free to anyone who's invested in his uh in kdp rocket amazing 
Yeah, that's I'm gonna have to check that out. That's very interesting. I, yeah. It's the first. Uh, it's the first I've actually heard of it. Super sharp guy, and actually, he's actually answered a, a couple of personal emails and given me some tips. So uh, just really engaging. You know, he's he's not uh, standing at a distance at all for his customers. That's yeah. It's a great way to run a business to give yeah. that personal touch for sure. Oh yeah. Uh, so one of the things that I love most about Los Angeles is that you never know who you're going to meet. There are so many talented people working on, you know, such diverse projects and interesting projects. Uh Um, It's exciting that you can strike up a conversation while waiting in line for coffee or in our case, it was a sauna. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, meet an inspiring creator with a unique and interesting stories and perspectives. So what really stood out to me was shortly after we exchanged information, you sent me an email with an advanced copy of book one of Dax Sanders Sea Patrol. Right. And in the email you said, and I'm quoting, hope you enjoy the read and the non-dystopian tone, enough of the grim, oppressive futures and starvation. I want to inspire young people to build a better world by giving them a vision of tomorrow worth living in. Yeah. So uh, my question is, did you first come up with the idea of Dax Sander by wanting to write something non-dystopian? Or did you have the idea for the character first? I mean, how did this idea first come about for you? Okay. Uh, let's back up a little bit. I, I mentioned Epcot Center earlier. And that I, that that was kind of my little um, oh Shangri-La when I was young. Um, and the whole tone of Epcot Center when it was new was less cartoony invasion of you know the Disney pantheon and more here's a world we can build if we really set our minds to doing something great and it was all about you know applying technology to make humanity's lives better and more functional and the community of of man and you know humankind of men and women around the world uh living together in cooperation and collaboration and and joyful coexistence. And that spirit was effusive there and it infected me. It really, really infected me. Epcot was supposed to be a city, but what they ended up building, because Walt was gone, they couldn't build a city. But what they built was very much in the spirit of a lot of his ideals. And I'm very much a a Walt Disney aficionado, disciple, whatever. Uh, So that was part of my, that whole, not utopian, but positive futurism, positive, we can build something better. That was always kind of ingrained in my psyche. So fast forward to working in the industry and writing for producers and pitching, working on my own specs. I don't, I honestly can't say how Dax was inspired, except that I love Johnny Quest. And, you know, it had been on my mind for a long time. It's like, what's my Johnny Quest? What's my, you know, really exciting kid adventure show? And so because I could draw, I knew that I could develop a package that was kind of fun. So I, I um, developed this idea. It was called Dax Marshall Sea Patrol, and it was about uh, the son of a naval commander. And it was um, about 60, 70 years in the future. Government officials around the world had identified that an alien presence had uh, settled on the ocean floor preparing for an invasion of the mainland all over the planet. And to prevent the public from chaos and panic, they were setting up sea patrols undersea uh, on the on the seafloor uh, with military amphibious military that could launch really quickly, you know, to go deep or go on the surface. And it was an extension of the navies of the different you know countries of the world. And one of the commanders uh, living in one of these sea bases with his family had a middle son, three sons, and the middle son, the stories would be about Dax, Dax Marshall, about 13, 14 years old. And it was all set on earth. Well, I, uh, I just had a very simple pitch. There was no pilot yet. There was just, uh, two pages of drawings and, uh, you know, my prepared pitch and, and like a one page synopsis. And that was it. It was very formative. But I could get into different places, and I uh, managed to get into Disney TV animation. I pitched to a guy there uh, who was very receptive. But at a certain point, he said, hey, does it have to be on Earth? Because then we don't have to deal with, you know, Switzerland or France. (laughs) And I had no idea. He just threw me. But when you're in these meetings, 
you know, you get weird little statements like that and you just roll with it. And I said, no, it doesn't have to be on earth. Um, he said, okay, great. Why don't you play with that? And let's meet again in about three or four weeks and then see where it is. And let's talk further because I really like this idea, but, uh, I think it, it needs a little more time in the oven. I'm like, okay, great. And he was right. It did need some more time in the oven, but I had no idea what he meant. So I left that meeting and, um, I just pondered, it's like, what does he mean by France and Switzerland? What, what is he? And then I thought, okay, well, why would we be on another planet? Why would humans be on another planet patrolling the seas, the oceans of another planet? And you got to remember, nobody was doing anything. Everything was, uh, the aliens are always going to come and kill us. The aliens, <laughs> except for ET, they're usually going to kill us or hurt us or infect us or take us over as pod people or whatever. And suddenly I, I, this thought hit me. It's like, we go there to protect them. We go there to save their lives. That's why we're patrolling their oceans, because they're in danger. And it just exploded. Because I thought, holy cow, that makes humanity the good guys again. We actually mm -hmm. do something compassionate and wonderful. I'm getting a little choked up. Sorry. To, 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 as a race, we up our game. And when that idea hit me, it was just like, holy cow, this is a whole other thing. It could be something really special. And that's how it exploded. And then uh, about a week and a half after that, I mean, I just worked on that like nonstop. So uh, my manager at the time arranged a, a pitch at Warner Brothers at Cartoon Network and uh, at their Burbank offices. They're in Atlanta, but I, they have Burbank offices. And, and uh, I pitched a Cartoon Network and the guy there loved it. He loved it. And it was like a Thursday or Friday. And he said, uh, come back. Let's come back on Monday. But I'm going to uh, Tuesday. I'm going to talk to the guys and uh, we're going to discuss this. So I was excited over the weekend. And then on Monday, he called me and he said, uh, hey, we're um, uh, I have some news here. We're owned, you know, we're owned by Warner Brothers and they have some existing characters. And I was told that we have a a decree from on high to develop an in-house property that is also sci-fi and underwater. And I just thought for two seconds and I said, you get, you're going to do Aquaman, aren't you? <laughs> and there was this pause, a little awkward pause. He said, yeah, we're going to do Aquaman. Well, they developed it, but they never did a cartoon. Uh, but it, it killed Daxander for the time being. I got hired at a Maji based on the strength of the pilot and some other stuff. Uh, and then at a certain point, I just kept getting ideas for the concept. I hope I'm not rolling on too long here, but. Oh, uh, no, this is good stuff. Uh, I, um, I kept getting ideas for it. And I have a saying, a good idea feeds itself. And that's how you know that it's something you should keep pursuing because it just keeps it's, you know, it's like a seed that just keeps self germinating. And I kept getting ideas for plots and for new characters and depth of the setting and the world building. And I realized it's like, you know what, if I if I sell this to Disney, if I go back to Disney, you know, that guy left, by the way, that was the other thing. Uh, he he called me up and he said, hey, we're, I'm, I have some news for you. I'm leaving Disney and I'm going to go to France and be a writer. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you said no France, no Switzerland. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but he went there. So but he did me a big favor because suddenly a couple of big doors shut for me. And I was at Amaji shortly thereafter uh, developing a movie for them. And, uh, and, and I kept getting ideas for Daxander and, and finally I'm like, you know what? I don't want this to be 22 minute cartoons made, you know, overseas on, you know, on a cheap budget. I want to do something more substantive with these stories. They feel special. So I thought maybe books, but I wasn't ready to write books. So I just kind of set them aside. I did not pitch anything Daxander. I just hit it. And I had the Maji executive ask me at a certain point, he's like, hey, how about that Daxander thing? I said, ah, I think I might be doing something else with it. And so I just kind of kept setting it aside. Uh, and then eventually I started doing research and um, saying, OK, I have to try this. And it was terrifying. But uh, here we are. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a big undertaking, too. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. This is a nine book series. Well, it was supposed to be eight. And the first book turned into two. So it may very well end up being nine unless I can figure a way to consolidate the stories I have uh, somewhere in the middle or at the end. Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, as uh, as a first book or novel, I mean, what, what made you decide to take on such a big undertaking? 
uh, fear. I when I re when I w realized I was so terrified of the prospect of, you know, writing scripts. You know, you write them in a few months' time, and uh, from start to finish, research and so forth, and then you're done, and you put it out there, and the producer either finds the money to get the movie made, or if you're lucky enough to work with a studio, you know, they're, they get it rolling and, and, you know, hopefully nobody screws it up. Uh, I have a few friends who work in the industry and they're very successful, uh, to varying degrees. And, um, but most writers I know, you know, they, they do what I do. They write a lot of films that never get made. They make a living doing that. Um, uh, writing a book. I wrote a very bad book at age 16 about a raccoon. <laughs> it was kind of like uh, supposed to be like Homer's Odyssey with a raccoon. It was really weird. And it was not good. It was not a good book. But the idea of, of actually writing, and it was like 100 pages. So when you're in high school, that feels like a lot. But uh, I knew that trying to write a saga about a hero and, and with the different things that were on my heart to express and, and the idea that this could be a, a model for kids, um, it was very daunting. And, and very scary. And it was the very fact that it was scary that I knew that I should do it. Um, so I tried to up my game in the sciences by um, researching astronomy, biology, microbiology, uh, uh, marine biology, um, physics, all kinds of things. And I'm by no means an expert in any of those things. But I've become kind of a, I've just developed appetites for all of those different subjects. And it helped ground the research ground the stories in kind of a what I call a conjectural science because they 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 start about 60 years from now the stories and uh that's not so far so I wanted it to feel you know something that you could apprehend and very tactile familiar but also kind of cool wow we're we're past this little hump you know with where things used to be so hard you know there's a moment in in the book where Dax sees a pimple on his face and he starts to pop it because he's 13 and he's like, wait a minute, do it right. So he reaches in the, you know, anything, anytime you have to open a drawer, or open a cabinet, it's like one more step. I hate ironing clothes because you got to pull the iron out of the cabinet and then set up the <laughs> ironing board. And, but he pulls out a little wand with a little swab thing, a gel and rubs it over his skin and the, and the pimples quickly, you know, just goes away, you know, little things like that. But we could see them being very real because we have stuff that's very similar to that now. I, I, I follow a lot of medical technology, um, but it was it was terrifying. That's really why I started. I, and because I wanted to discover this world, I wanted to see it up close and it's become very real to me. So it's, you know, I go to Disneyland a lot, but this is the best theme park I've ever been to. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I know you're a big fan of science fiction. Yeah. I, is there a particular author or authors or book or maybe films that really influenced you for uh, Dax Sander? Uh, Ray Bradbury uh, has always been my favorite sci-fi author. Um, but uh, there's Ben Bova and Asimov. You know, they're really, uh, you know, amazing story storytellers. Um, uh, oh, there's so many. I read a lot of short stories, more short stories than novels. and. And uh, because they take you to a place very quickly and usually they, they set up some kind of an ethical question or a, or a question about the human condition and just leave you pondering. And Bradbury did that with such poetry. Um, he didn't just write sci-fi. In fact, he wrote a lot of fantasy. It, it quantifies his fantasy. Like my favorite of his novels is not sci-fi at all. It's something wicked this way comes. And it, I think it's one of the most beautiful things ever written. Uh, but it's a poetry about change and about loyalty and friendship and themes that are very important to me. Um, but Bradbury, the way he would just kind of take you into a place, whether it's the future or whether it's a fantastic situation and make it just artfully poetic, uh, just lifted the soul. And in, in in he just had such a way with words and I am nowhere near in that universe of capacity with words, but he is who I try to emulate uh, with my storytelling, at least, and with the feeling, the depth of feeling. I mean, that guy never forgot what it meant to be a kid, uh, never lost his sense of wonder. And with Daxander, I think one thing that friends who have read and, and a few strangers who have read the book so far have expressed is 
it feels very immersive and kind of wondrous. There's these moments when you just really share the character's atavistic awe at their surroundings and who they're meeting, encountering, and interacting with. So, right. It, you, as you mentioned the short stories, is there one short story in particular that you feel you really affected the way you thought about Doc Sander? Ooh, ooh, boy, that's a good question. Um, whew, it would definitely be one of Bradbury's. I on at the moment I couldn't identify which which specific one. It's probably just the aggregate of many. <laughs> <laughs> he had many stories about. Uh, astronauts exploring uh, a new world, uh, about alien beings, encounters with humans in very interesting and strange ways, sometimes not so nice ways, but usually they were pretty, pretty wondrous and, and wonderful. All right. Um, what, what was the hardest scene for you to write? I mean, you've got nine nine books, uh, a mm-hmm. whole, whole lot of different scenes. Was there one that really stands out to you as as the hardest and most difficult? It's in book two because book two is written. It'll be released in June or July. Uh, it's late in book two and it's a very painful moment uh, for one of the characters. Um, I couldn't get through it every time, whether I, when I was writing it, I was sobbing. And uh, when I reread it, I I cry. I I can't help but cry. It's the, the characters are very real to me, obviously, but it's a it's a painful moment where you know in 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 book one it's it's mostly preparing. It, it's an encounter with with these this these wonderful aliens and a decision to go help them. And in book two, we're actually engaged in that process on their world, and things get real <laughs> and they get very real for especially for a kid who's you know just turning 14 uh and it it was an extremely traumatic moment but it's something that i think a lot of kids will identify in their own way um part of my goal with Dax Anders is to provide um I, you know i'm the i'm blanking on the word but but it's but for kids to be able to go through these experiences, it's kind of like when you take children to Disney movies and they experience their first real terrifying moment, you know, from the evil witch in Snow White or uh, that awful moment when Pinocchio starts turning into a donkey, hmm. uh, you know, and sees his best buddy just completely turn into a donkey. These are horrifying. I mean, Hitchcock said that was one of the scariest things he'd ever seen on film. But it's good for kids to have a, just a taste of fear because if their parents are next to them, they recognize the strength their parents provide. And they also recognize that this is transient and passing and that fear doesn't last and that there it's something you live through and will encounter, but it doesn't have to defeat you. So I'm trying to create moments in Daxander that kids can live through. Um, you know, and, and survive and be stronger for it. You said that fear is what really brought you to the series, uh, uh, for Dax Sander and fear being an essence of, uh, the, the hardest scene for you to write. Do you see fear in general as a, perhaps a theme or a motif that, uh, Dax Sander in particular, but maybe your work explores? The unknown is is a big thing in the Dax Sander stories. We're constantly coming, you know, face to face with the unknown. And that's nothing new. You know, most of this type of fiction deals with that. Uh, but dealing with it from uh, the per- perspective of a young person and recognizing that there are consequences, uh, I think is a healthy thing to wrangle with. Um, Fear is not what drives my writing, but uh, it is, it's a great catalyst to becoming stronger, to testing yourself, and to laying the foundations for hope. So in the stories, we take on a great mission of compassion, not knowing really whether we can trust these aliens. We don't know that much about them, and we definitely don't know much about 
the alien beings that we're trying to protect them from, who are supposedly very ruthless and, and harsh and, and savage. Uh, but we take it on and, and then we go on the journey to find out, okay, you know, how many of our fears were justified, rational, and what's behind what we supposedly fear. And I think, you know, a lot of prejudice is based in ignorance and willful ignorance that we don't test, that we don't challenge. And, uh, you know, in, in, in being, when I say I, I started it because of fear, I, I wanted to, to kind of prove to myself that I could do it and, uh, and surmount that. And because once I, you know, for a long time writing the first book, I was like, is this any good? Is anybody going to like this? Am I just completely insane? Uh, am I fooling myself? And then at a certain point, you know, I was sharing with others, but at a certain point between the feedback I was getting from others and just a growing sense of, yeah, I can actually compose these thoughts and do them in a fashion that is kind of engrossing and sweet and, and wondrous, uh, the fear goes away somewhat. I'm still afraid of writing the other books. There's a lot to do, <laughs> but, but I know I can do it now. It's like, I can drive, I can drive the car. I can drive, you know, it's the difference between driving just a sedan and driving a, my, uh, my best friend has this huge Dodge Ram and my first few times in that driver's seat, I'm like way up high and it's this enormous thing. And it feels like you're driving a boat, but you do it. And after a while it's like, okay, you develop the confidence. And I think that's just a rite of passage, no matter what age you're at, uh, for all sorts of things. In what ways would you say it is both different and the same writing screenplays versus a book? Oh, structure. Uh, there's different kinds of structure you use in film, uh, you know, linear, nonlinear and mise-en-scene. And, um, and in, in books, you know, you want a strong structure so that your reader doesn't feel lost. But at the same time, you can provide a lot more nuance and you can jump around in time without worrying about how it's going to be edited by a film editor, uh, you know, who matches your vision. So I'd say definitely the structure, the character development, you get to play with characters a lot more in a book. Uh, you can get inside their head if you choose that sort of, um, you know, narrative. Um, you can, Oh, wow. You can just paint visually. You know, with film, the, the, with film writing, the objective is to tell a story with as few words as possible. It's, it, there's a lot of pressure there. Uh, <laughs> the real estate on the page is you, you don't want a cluttered page and you want producers to fly through those pages and feel like they're on an adventure and, and you know, consequently the audience eventually. With books, uh, you shouldn't feel like, um, you can be lazy just throwing words out, but, you know, there should be some sense of economy and, and concise narrative uh, crafting. But but you do have the luxury of indulging a moment and stretching out a scene or a sequence and uh, or even a character's, uh, you know, obsessing on some little this or that. And it's it's just wonderful. So that where they diverge is where the fun is really just, it's a, it's a picnic. It's delightful. Well, considering that divergence, was there a particular uh, scene or moment that, uh, you know, you appreciate the fact that Dax is a book more so than uh, a screenplay first that allowed you to do something or explore something that you maybe would not have been able to? Yes. Um, the book spends a lot of time in setup. Uh, which some readers won't care for. I, I fully acknowledge that there'll be some people who just aren't into it and tire of, you know, time with the, the Xander family before, you know, there, there's something really exciting that happens at the beginning. And then we're with the family for, you know, about two chapters, two full chapters, and it's just domestic stuff. But uh, in a movie, there would be this, you know, some producer would be saying, hey, by minute seven, we need to be on to our next, uh, you know, whammo moment, which was a, a Joel Silver term uh, for like every 10 minutes, you need a whammo scene, uh, a big explosion or a, a runaway train or something. Um, but in Daxander, I get to spend time with the family and enjoy them. And there's a whole scene with Dax and his little brother, and they've been kind of consigned to their, their bedroom because they misbehaved a bit. 
Um, and, uh, and his little brother asks a little question about cowboys because Dax has books on cowboys. And it's, you know, you got to remember, it's 2077. And so Dax spends, um, you know, several minutes explaining to his brother what cowboys were. <laughs> uh, and because they're at the bottom of the sea, their window looks out onto a reef with fish going by. And, um, and they don't, you know, they've never encountered cowboys. But, but he takes that time to explain that. And it comes into play much later in the story because they will be pioneers of a different sort. And uh, I don't think I'd get to do that in the movie. It might end up being like a one minute scene, which would be okay. But to take time with those themes and kind of ground them and like layer them into the audience, the readers, uh, so that it, later on, much later on, they're going to hear just the word cowboy or, or pioneer or something like that. And it's going to have so much more resonance and value. Um, I don't think it's something you could do effectively in a movie. There's a lot of instances like that. Right. Knowing that uh, you've got nine books, yeah. if a producer was to get a hold of Dax Xander and want to make a film series out of it, how many films would it take? Oh, probably probably one per book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't I don't see how you could merge definitely you couldn't you definitely couldn't merge the first two books into one film uh, unless you know, I would be crying <laughs> unless, it was, <laughs> unless it was four hours long. Um, I, I think it'd be one per book probably. And I, and I'm a filmic sort of guy, a cinematic sort of guy. So I think when I write, I kind of, there's always that I never count my chickens before they're catch people. You know, I have wonderful, lovely friends who keep saying things like, I can't wait to see this on the screen. I'm like, yeah, they'll be the most expensive movies ever made. You know, Harry Potter's <laughs> expensive, but this is all underwater. Everything has to be made. Um, and it's not all underwater. There's a lot of space stuff too, and there's all kinds of weird creatures. But it's expensive. It'd be, it'll be expensive to mount if it's ever done. Um, yeah, and I, I, you didn't ask, but I'm gonna just say it's like I'm not. I have had a couple of people, just a couple of producers, make minor offers for film rights, and I've, I've just gently and politely said I, I'm going to wait until kids have discovered at least the first two books and embrace them. Uh, and there's something of a wide readership because I just, I don't want to take the chance that a film or a Netflix series might underplay, you know, these moments and suddenly it's, Oh, I saw that, you know, they see the book and it's like, Oh, I saw it on Netflix. It wasn't that good. I want mm. them to discover the books and know that the books and the stories on their own are good. And then it won't matter. I mean, it will matter, but it'll, you know, Nintendo, Little secret, I, at Amaji, I was hired for a little while to work on a development of uh, The Legend of Zelda as a movie. And oh, my favorite game. Imagi, my favorite. Really? <laughs> yeah, I love Zelda. Love Zelda. Well, Amaji spent a lot of money developing a trailer because they didn't have the rights. And uh, sadly, they no longer exist. But at the time, they put a lot of money into uh, you know, creating a trailer with beautiful storyboards. This amazing artist that did almost all the storyboards himself. And they did an animatic. I was hired initially to work on the story and I developed a treatment and so forth for a movie version. Um, but, you know, Nintendo was unmoved. <laughs> and, and I later found out Spielberg's company approached them about the rights and they turned him down. They don't need to. You know, everybody loves Zelda and it's had these so many successful iterations. How do you make that movie? Eventually somebody will. But how do you make that movie that pleases everybody? Uh, you won't. Somebody will make a hopefully a good movie someday, but but they don't need to. Uh, they're doing quite fine with their storytelling and game form, uh, and they're nervous about eroding the value of that with a, a movie that doesn't quite perform. So, I'm not Legend of Zelda, but I'll be protective of my stories as long as I can and as long as I can feed myself. And then, you know, if I have to do a P.L. Travers, here's the rights Walt thing, I'll I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so. A goal for Dax, of course, as you said, was to you know have a have a character and, and a world that's you know worth living in, like you discuss. And yeah. your series is already making a difference for young people with your partnership with uh, Purdue University's oh, Agile yeah. Strategy Lab. 
Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the partnership, its goals, and how your hero, Dak Xander, will save the day? Sure. Um, a professor at Purdue uh, that I've known for some time um, offered to read the books. He has two teenage boys, and his wife read the book as well. And they found it really immersive, and they uh, he is part of the Agile Strategy Lab at Purdue. He's one of the founders of it. It's a group that exists to uh, try to foment collaboration, and um, I hope I'm expressing this well, um, cooperation between disparate peoples, uh, come up with solutions to community problems uh, around the country and around the world. They're all over the world now. They're in a number of countries, uh, creating workshops that help educate um, people who have in communities where they're 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 kind of coming up against uh, infrastructure problems or uh, social problems or whatever, and they don't seem to have a clear path to a better way. And the Agile Strategy Lab, uh, what I've seen is that they come in and help develop constructive workshops and um, interactions with these people so that they can together design solutions to their issues. Um, and then also they've been developing curricula for um, all all grade levels, as far as I know. I don't think they go like primaries, but but elementary, middle school, uh, high school. Um, and when the, they read Dax Xander and they knew what I wanted to do with it, they're like, wow, you're investing in conjectural science here. That's it's grounded in real science where we're going. It'd be great if we could inspire kids to embrace the sciences and mathematics uh, in a way that, you know, basically to, to make it short, our mutual goal is to make math and science sexy for kids again, <laughs> um, because we're woefully behind in America. I think we're starting to catch up. Things are waking up. It's starting to become cool again. Uh, but for a very long time, we lag behind other countries like Japan and 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 China and so forth who are who are really emphasizing the sciences and that will be to the betterment of humankind. But I, I want to see American kids and, and the world, the rest of the world's kids engaged in physics and chemistry and microbiology. And there are wonderful progress. There's wonderful advances being made almost every day in the medical sciences and other sci energy, uh, energy generation, energy storage, that are going to make our lives incredibly better over the next decade or two. Uh, but that he needs to continue. And there's so much more that could be done with the mix and application of these various sciences. We got to inspire young people to find this an almost heroic thing uh, to be invested in. So the Agile Strategy Lab is uh, designing curricula that is STEM-based and has already designed a role-playing game that is about collaboration. So in a big sense, if I can go back to my Epcot Center thing, Epcot had two worlds, uh, Future World and World Showcase. World Showcase was about the all of humanity collaborating towards a better future, and Future World was about applying ourselves to embrace technology in smart ways to make our lives more efficient and healthier and more energy efficient. And uh, and that's what the Agile Strategy Lab is doing and going to be doing with Daxander going forward. That's very exciting. I, uh, I like that there's such a, more so than just imagination, like a lot of books or works of fiction, as the ideas help, uh, you know, the reader uh, and kids, in, in your case, you know, inspired for a better future. But literally putting learning uh, in their hands is a very direct way with the world that you've built. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I, I, I neglected to mention Purdue University, where the Agile Strategy Lab is, is based, is uh, known as the cradle of astronauts. More uh, astronauts have gone to space, more, more graduates of Purdue than uh, have gone to space than from any other institution. So, uh, and I think that includes cosmonauts. I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, I, I want to shift gears just a little bit. This maybe is uh, could be a general question, or it could apply directly to uh, Dax Xander. Okay. Uh, but what what is the most difficult part 
of your artistic process? Oh, um, hmm. I'd say, um, I'd say creating characters that are plainly flawed and, and exposing their faults in a very honest, uh, you know, bare knuckled way. Uh, you love your characters and you don't want, especially in, in my universe, I've made a decision that I don't want treacherous human beings. We'll deal with all sorts of alien races and uh, all kinds of conflict, but a big point of my stories is that we are a little kinder and gentler now and we're working together and it's kind of an objective for humans, even when we have disputes to really try to resolve those. But humans are humans and we have all kinds of flaws and hangups and things and, and exposing those in ways that are not uh, exploitive, exploitative, whatever, uh, but honest you know, you, you don't want to admit that your characters have those flaws. You know, you want to be the God of your universe and that you created them all perfect, but they're flawed. And sometimes it hurts to kind of dive into that well and, and live with their problems and show that, you know, they're, they're kind of messed up. That's, that's probably the hardest thing because you always want to present them as nice and wonderful and awesome. And, you know, Dax's mother is a brilliant, brilliant physicist but she's also insecure because she thinks people perceive her as cold and austere. So she's, uh, as a mechanism, she's like reading a joke book and trying to tell jokes that aren't that good to the family and in attempts to lighten up her perceived image. And it's a little, it's cute. It's funny, but it's also a little bit sad. Um, because she's accomplished so much, she should take great pride in that. But, but we all have something, you know, it's like, you know, I, I don't like my nose. Other people don't like their height uh, or their weight or whatever. Um, we have so much to be thankful for and to take pride in, uh, especially in our achievements and how we've overcome obstacles. But but exposing our faults and living in those places where, you know, that, that that's what makes real characters. But it's painful sometimes. Um, Dax makes mistakes. And in book one, he makes a very big mistake. Um, He's a little irresponsible more than one. And that's part of the story of his growth. But dealing with that properly and adequately and with enough time and investment, uh, that's painful. It, it actually is painful. Is it because you have almost a personal relationship since it really comes from a part of you? Yeah. Dax feels like my son. He's like the son. And, you know, Dax Shaw and Shaw is very insecure with around girls you know, and he's, he's very smart, but wow, get him around a girl. And he just, he tenses up and says dumb things. And, uh, and I feel like these are my sons in a way. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm protective of them, but, but I need to let them grow up and make these mistakes. Yes. Uh, that's the, the essence of story as, as, as hard as it is, is to get that growth. Yeah. Yeah. What, what advice would you offer to someone who wanted to be the next creator up in your field as, as a writer, as a screenwriter? Research. Uh, never shirk from research. Um, it is really richly rewarding. Uh, no matter what you're writing, there's always a way to research um, characters, events, uh, something that's parallel. If you're in a fantasy universe, there's if you just think long enough, you'll find things you can research to that, that apply to whatever you're writing and that will enhance your writing. Um, research has always served me well. And especially on Daxander, because fortunately it's science fiction. I can research the sciences, but I, but talk to your friends, spread the word. You know, I, I let my friends know it's like, I need to talk to an anthropologist. And suddenly I had access to two anthropologists uh, who knew some things, who, who revealed some things about ancient American, uh, Native American history that was really interesting and, you know, for, for future books. And um, the resources we have and our friends and our acquaintances, people, most people are, are really willing to help you and, and uh, assist you and uh, co cooperate if you just ask them for a little help or assistance or information. So my interviews with people, that's part of my research, too. Um, I'll be interacting with uh, an acoustic science expert, one of the world's foremost acoustic science experts, sometime in the next few months. He's a friend of a friend. 
really excited about that because book three deals with acoustic science. Each book will have one or two sciences kind of highlighted as part of the story, not in a clinical or awkward way, but organically into the story. And I'm just hoping kids will be like, oh, wow, I could be an acoustic scientist, you know, and you never know what that might yield. So uh, research, research. Yes, uh, I, 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 that's, uh, I, I love that. And a, what a great way to uh, potentially not only learn something new that affects the story, but uh, kind of keep your curiosity really yeah. growing and new story points, I'm sure, come up from uh, doing that as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So one of our primary goals with Next Creator Up is to help share good creative work. Okay. So with this in mind, what is something that you think is especially shareworthy? It could be a book, a film, a TV show, an app, or some cool tool or product. Uh, that somebody else has created. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to say uh, this is a weird weird suggestion. Um, there's a Brad Bird movie called Tomorrowland and it is a flawed film. Um, but it has a wonderful message. And, uh, as much as I fully admit that it is a flawed narrative and the, and it could have been a much better movie, it is worth the watch for anyone that feels like we're just on a dismal track as a people, as a species. There is hope and there's people that want to build a better future. And there's so few films that embrace that idea of hope for our future, that we can take the reins and, and do a better job, that we have a responsibility to do a better job. And Brad Bird is a, is a fantastic filmmaker. And there are wonderful moments in this movie and some poignant thoughts. Uh, there's a great scene early in the film where the, the girl, she's about 16, She's in a class and the teacher's showing film clips of the world just in its worst conditions. You know, there's riots and starvation in different parts of the world. And there's, you know, the, the ice caps are melting and, and the rainforests are being depleted. And finally, she raises her hand and he's just droning on about this, about how awful everything is. And she raises her hand and she says, I get it. Things are bad. What do we do to make it better? Mm. And he just stares at her. And is like, what? He says, how do we do make it better? And he has no answer for her. And that's a big problem with our culture is the dystopia sells because it's sensationalistic and painful. But on almost every metric, the world is in a better place than it was 100 years ago. Almost every metric. And, and for every crisis of the environment or energy or or medicine, uh, health that you can name, there are uh, probably a dozen different fairly well-funded groups working on solutions. But there, but people are living longer around the planet. There's less poverty around the planet. Uh, there's less starvation. There's more prosperity. Uh, these things don't sell in the media. But there are people who are taking responsibility for making a better future. And Imagine what we could do if we started emphasizing those people and lauding those people and giving more awards to teachers and scientists instead of, you know, the Grammys, the Oscars. Those are great. Those are great. We need those for our spiritual and, and cultural enlightenment. But we need to celebrate people that are coming up with these solutions and making them the superheroes so that kids start putting on their super suits you know, and, and taking and getting ready to step into their place uh, to, to build the future that is already in construction. I don't know if I answered your question. I'm sorry. Uh, you 100% answered my question. Okay. I, I love, I, I, I love that. Um, I, uh, I have very similar sentiments to Tomorrowland. Okay. I, um, <laughs> so uh, yes, I, I appreciate that. Hey, everybody. Before we get into our lightning round, just a quick announcement. Did you know that we record additional lightning round questions with every guest who comes on the show? It's unaired and exclusive for our Creative Lightning newsletter subscribers. These quick Q&As were designed to elicit actionable insights to help spark your imagination and propel you beyond your creative blocks. We uncover favorite resources and books and tackle issues relevant to all creators such as 
How do you stay motivated when it's hard? How do you generate your best ideas? How do you know when an idea is the right idea? What do you do when you are creatively blocked? To get our guests' answers to these questions and more, join the free email list at nextcreatorup.com slash creativelightning. And now, on with the lightning round. Uh, what's the most important part of your creative routine? Oh, um, <laughs> a good walk along the ocean, actually. Yeah. I live near the beach, so you know that. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, as we both do, I agree. That is my, yeah. my favorite and best as well. And, and, some, ca- and, some, and some caffeine, to be quite honest. <laughs> I, I'm a firm believer in caffeine. Okay. If I'm right. Yes, we got a couple of coffee shops right at the end of our strand of ocean. <laughs> there you go. That's it. What's something you do to ignite your creativity? Oh, uh, I have weird little rituals. Uh, one is I have a sandwich that I've eaten since I was a little kid. It's a very strange sandwich involving peanut butter, honey, and a couple of other ingredients. And uh, it just kind of connects me to when I was a little kid. Um, music is a huge thing. I have a, a huge assortment, mostly of uh, orchestral soundtracks from motion pictures. Uh, I'll assemble a collection that's similar in genre and tone to whatever I'm writing and just play it on a loop. That's big. Music's big. Do you find that the sandwich that you eat that brings you back to that kind of childhood state, is it that it helps with maybe a play instinct that's helpful to you? Uh, or Yeah, it just kind of keeps remembering, you know, thinking, okay, 10 years old, 10 years old. What did I love when I was 10 years old? And it's effortless now. It's like it just it's automatic. I just go there. What part of your creative process do you find most satisfying? Rewriting. Rewriting. Uh, The writing is, I always liken it to pottery. So you've got to get the clay on the spinning wheel. And until you punch your fist into it, you don't have a vase. But then you technically have a vase. But you can spend as much time as you want refining it on that spinning wheel. But you got to get the clay on there. And for me, that's the the raw story, at least an outline or preferably a first draft. In scripts, it's definitely the first draft. And then you start refining and rewriting. Rewriting is easily four-fifths of my time. A few uh, fill-in-the-blank questions here. Okay. When the going gets tough, I... Pray. (laughs) (laughs) I get my best ideas when... I'm in the water, either underwater or walking by the ocean. When I'm hard on myself about my work, I remind myself blank. That every artist goes through crises of self-doubt, and the way through is to simply knuckle down and work. Work and discipline afford opportunity. What is something that some might consider a curse that is actually a blessing for you? Criticism. I needed to learn this in order to be where I am today. That not everybody will like what I'm working on or create. And that's okay. Do you believe in writer's block? Yes, but I also believe it's completely surmountable. Discipline breeds opportunity. You just have to not walk away when you're confronted with writer's block. You just have to plow through somehow. Great. Noah, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be on the podcast and for being our next creator up. Um, Thank you. How can people learn more about you and what you're working on? Uh, the website is very simple. It's daxzander.com. That's D-A-X-Z-A-N-D-E-R.com. There's an author page there. There's also information about the Purdue uh, curricula initiative. And um, uh, there's information about the characters, about the stories, about book one. There's a link to the Amazon site uh, to purchase the book if they want. Um, and uh, also, I just throw in a word here. if if People know of uh, reading programs or teachers of middle school and high school students. I want to try to make Kindle versions of the book, e-books available for free uh, different times during the year to groups like that and teachers especially.
Great. We'll make sure that we put all of that information in the show notes um, and, and, and let people know. Um, and thanks again for not only being on the show, but for writing something non-dystopian and thanks. for taking uh, taking that risk and time. Um, it's uh, it's it's beautiful what you're trying to do, and I appreciate you sharing it with us. Thank you so much, Aaron. I really appreciate the time and uh, and and just having this opportunity. It's great. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, the best way to support us is by leaving a review on iTunes. This helps us reach a wider audience, which enables us to attract more interesting and inspiring guests for future episodes. And if you want to learn more about today's guests and to find the links and resources we discussed, check out our show notes at nextcreatorup.com and click on the link for this episode.